Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to what I suppose you could take to be a rhetorical question that is asked by the Apostle in verse 34. Right there at the beginning of the verse, notice what it says. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemns? We read. Now when Paul asks the question, who is he that condemneth? We might answer that we live in a world where just about everyone condemns something or someone. Religions condemn other religions. Political parties condemn other political parties. And on certain moral issues that make their way into politics, the anathemas are hurled back and forth just like a mud fight that you might find at a county fair, I suppose. I've seen instances of parents condemning children and children condemning parents. And where marriages break down, it seems that each partner in the marriage condemns the other. And then there are the real proud and pious elite who think they rise above it all by condemning the condemners. Their favorite Bible verse is Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. In their estimation, anything goes. And moral judgments and moral decisions should never be made. Let each one do what's right in his own eyes. The thinking goes. A closer look at the context in which Christ makes that judge not statement reveals that their interpretation and application of the judge not statement is completely contrary to what Christ means by it. They don't have a clue as to what that really means. 
We should note, however, that when Paul asks, who is he that condemneth? What he's really driving home to the Roman Christians that he's addressing is that when it comes to the whole matter of justifying or condemning anyone for anything, there's only one person in all the universe that matters, and that's Christ himself. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. When it comes to the follower of Christ, then, the highest judge of the highest court in all the universe has slammed the gavel on the desk and pronounced the sentence, and there is no higher court of appeal that can overturn the sentence of the believer being justified. You've heard it said along the way, it's a forensic term, the term justify, which means it's a legal term. Put yourself in the courtroom when you hear that term. And here is the pronouncement of the one who has all authority that the follower of Christ is justified. And if God says you're justified, then what difference does it make? And who cares what any other court or any other judgmental individual may think or announce? The sentence of God is what stands all contrary judgments notwithstanding. What I'd like to do this morning, however, in preparation for the remembrance of Christ, is to zoom in some on this concept of condemnation. The New Testament actually has quite a bit to say on the subject, and we, will, we, we won't come anywhere near exhausting the subject today. But in order to appreciate what Christ has accomplished by his atoning death, it becomes necessary for us to expand and deepen our understanding in this matter of condemnation. Who is he that condemneth? Well, in analyzing this question, let's consider first the sources from which condemnation comes. The sources from which condemnation comes. I, I've touched on this in a practical way already. Uh, you could say, well, the sources for condemnation come from everyone. We all have a tendency toward it. But let's think on the sources that Paul has in view, especially in this letter to the Romans. Paul, earlier in this epistle to the Romans, deals with two sources from which condemnation comes. The first source you could call the voice of conscience. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. And notice how Paul says that this knowledge of God is manifest in them. He doesn't simply say that this knowledge was manifested to them, but it was manifested in them. In other words, there is an internal witness to God that can be found in every created human being. 
There really is no such thing, you see, as an honest atheist. An atheist is one who exerts great effort to lie to himself and convince himself that there is no God. This is why the psalmist attributes foolishness to the atheist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In the depth of his being, he knows better. He knows that there is. I'm sure I've shared with you an illustration that uh, a faculty member at Bob Jones once uh, brought our attention to when I was a student there when he told the story of a, a friend of his, I believe, in Dallas, Texas, whose job it was to administer lie detector tests. This man was a Christian. And according to this man, whenever he asked the question of anybody who was receiving this test, do you believe in God? He never did receive a no answer without having it register as a lie. I think that's rather fascinating, isn't it? In the depth of his being, he knows better. Now, while it's true that the voice of conscience is very limited in what it can say about God, especially when compared to what the Bible reveals about God, it's true, nevertheless, that he does know something about God. Romans 1 and verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Do you catch Paul's meaning in that verse? He's saying that when the day of judgment comes, when men stand before God to give account of their lives, there will be no one that will be able to use the excuse, well, I'm sorry, God, I didn't know you even existed. If only I knew you would that you existed, it would have made a difference in my life. Such an excuse will not fly because they did know and they do know that God exists. They know his Godhead, Paul says, which is another way of saying that they know his deity and they know his power verse 20 goes on to say. But there's something else they know. After Paul describes their sinfulness a little later in Romans chapter 1, he then wraps up his description with this statement found in the very last verse of chapter 1, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them underscore that phrase, they know the judgment of God. They're aware not merely of God's existence, his deity and his power, but they have a sense of his judgment. They have a sense, in other words, of right and wrong. It does not matter that they may not have ever learned the Ten Commandments in Sunday school, or been taught those commandments by a homeschool mom. They have an internal sense of those commandments, and they know intuitively 
That sin calls for judgment. I won't take the time to trace it for you now, but let me suggest to you an exercise you can apply to your Bible reading. The next time you're reading through the book of Genesis, take note of how often men show knowledge of the Ten Commandments way before the Ten Commandments were ever given on Mount Sinai. I'll cite one instance of it. Abimelech, who was about to steal uh, Abram's wife Sarai, and the Lord came and appeared to him in a dream by night and restrained him from his design. And Abimelech, in his defense, says, uh, Abram lied to me. He said she was his sister. Do you see what's being demonstrated there in the life of Abimelech? He knew it was sinful to take another man's wife. Now, this was generations before the Lord had descended upon Mount Sinai and announced the Ten Commandments, including the one, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you can find other instances like that that demonstrate a knowledge of the moral law of God even before the Ten Commandments were announced on Mount Sinai. Now, when you come to Romans chapter 2, you need to keep in mind that there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions in the Bible when it was originally written. Romans 2 and verse 1 flows right out of chapter 1 and perhaps should be included in chapter 1. Listen to what Paul writes. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. The very fact that sinful men have the capacity to make moral judgments demonstrates that they know right from wrong. They know what sin is, and they know that sin deserves judgment. So that's the first source that Paul deals with in the matter of condemnation. You might say that the answer to his question, who is he that condemneth, would be the voice of conscience. The voice of conscience condemns sinners for their sins. Whole nother matter about where the voice of conscience enters into the Christian life. Maybe we'll get into that in a future study. Paul refers to another source as well when it comes to condemnation. You could say that he argues first for the condemnation of the Gentiles, those who did not have the same privileges as the Jews, but then he also deals with the condemnation of the Jews. Listen to his words beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2, where he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? 
Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, and so forth. With great privileges, you know, come great responsibilities. And the Jews certainly had great privileges. Indeed, the greatest of their privileges was that they possessed the oracles of God, or the Old Testament scriptures. So in Romans chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul asked the question, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, here's the big advantage, many advantages, but here is uh, the first and foremost advantage, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Conscience, you see, all by itself, without any outside aid, is capable of being deceived and programmed wrongly. But conscience, with the aid of God's Word, is all the more capable of knowing with assurance the standards of God's law. And the point Paul is making in Romans 2 is that the Jews, even with their additional privileges, were also condemned, just like the Gentiles, because they, too, were breakers of God's law. So in chapter 3, in verse 19, Paul writes, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. This is the very thing that Paul was aiming to conclude up to this point in Romans. The world is guilty before God. The Gentiles are guilty before God. They didn't receive the Old Testament scriptures, but they have the voice of conscience, and they break that standard. The Jews who have every advantage, especially the advantage of Old Testament scriptures, the oracles of the God, they too are guilty because they have broken that standard. Who then is he that condemneth? The answer is that before the gospel enters the picture, the whole world is condemned and condemned by God himself. This is not simply a matter of people within the world hurling anathemas at each other. No, the source for God's condemnation comes through the voice of conscience and it comes through his written revelation, the Bible. And the Bible concludes, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But we must go a little deeper into the subject of condemnation now by looking secondly at the reasons for it the reasons 
for condemnation. And in considering these reasons, we can also take into account the strength of the sentence against us in our condemnation. In speaking of the day of judgment and referring to God, Paul writes in Romans 2 and verse 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Okay, underscore that last phrase especially, according to his deeds. The word deeds refers to the things we do. It's sometimes translated by the word works. And this brings to mind that fearful passage in the book of Revelation, which refers to the final judgment in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, where we read, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So their deeds, their works, the sentence of condemnation, you could say then, is strong upon us when measured by our deeds. And I might add here, not only in the things that we do that transgress God's law, but also in the things that we fail to do, that we're called upon to do by God's law. Every transgression is noted and will be revealed. I know we contemplated this not too uh, long ago when I, I did uh, a study on the use of the term book or books throughout the Bible, there is a sense in which everyone here, everyone in this room, everyone under the sound of my voice, you are in the process, whether you know it or not, of writing a book. And the book that you are writing, arguably, you could say, is an inspired and infallible book. Insofar is that God himself is the one who's writing it by keeping track of every deed. So the sentence of condemnation is strong upon us when weighed by our deeds. Every transgression noted and will be revealed. The sinner will be accountable for every misdeed, for every time he has broken one of God's commandments. And it only takes a single instance of breaking one of God's commandments to be judged as a guilty sinner. We shouldn't suppose, however, that only that one sin will be judged. They will all be scrutinized and judged. So the sentence of condemnation is strong upon us if weighed by our deeds, but the strength of the sentence is stronger still when you add to it your words. I say unto you, this is Christ speaking now in Matthew 12 and verse 36, I say unto you that 
Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of it in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. This would take into account then every lie and every form of slander, every falsehood uttered by the sinner. God knows every idle word. He knows the real intention behind every idle word. He knows how to recognize malicious slander and damaging gossip. So when we add to our sentence of condemnation, not only the deeds we perform, but the words we speak, we may conclude that the sentence is very strong upon us. We're guilty of more than what we can even calculate. What a strong sentence then is upon the sinner. He's condemned for what he does. He's condemned for what he says. We could add, he's condemned for what he thinks. For the law penetrates even to the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he's condemned for what he loves. For Christ says of sinful man that this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. And so we're all guilty. We're all extremely guilty. We might feel sorry for a man in a human court who lived a life by human standards that was upright and then tragically fell into a crime, perhaps by desperate circumstances. But we wouldn't feel sorry for a man who habitually broke the law at every turn until he was finally caught we feel no sympathy for a serial rapist or a murderer, for those who habitually and deliberately commit terrible crimes, and yet our state before God is no better than such sinners before men. We're not just a little bit guilty, folks. We're plagued with much guilt and with great guilt. The sentence upon us is strong for any number of reasons. And the more we realize this, then the greater our appreciation will be for the next and the final thing we contemplate, which is, thirdly, the solution to this great condemnation. And let me say here, before even going into this heading, that we are far from exhausting the study of condemnation that we've just touched upon in the previous point. Much more could be added to it, but I hope I've touched upon it enough to drive home the point of our guilt and our need. The solution, then, to this great condemnation. Listen to the answer that Paul himself provides in answer to his own question who is he that condemneth? He goes on to say, It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Here is a fourfold answer, then, to the matter of condemnation. 
There can be no condemnation, as Paul has said earlier at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 8. And why? Why can there be no condemnation? Because Christ died and has thus made atonement for our sins. And Christ is risen, which proves his atoning death has satisfied justice and is acceptable to his Father. And Christ is at God's right hand, a position he has earned by his perfect life and his atoning death, a position, I might add, that he would only take, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, after having purged our sins. And in addition to these things, he makes intercession to his Father based on the accomplishment of his atoning death that the blessings of salvation would be applied to all those that believe in him. He died, he rose, he's at God's right hand, he makes intercession. That's Paul's answer to the question, who is he that condemneth? Now here is one of the great ironies of Scripture when it comes to the matter of condemnation. We know of Christ that there was no basis for him to be condemned. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him there was no sin, and yet he would be condemned. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, he would say to his disciples, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. In Matthew 20 and verse 18. And what Christ foretold came to pass. So we read in Mark chapter 14 and verse 64. Ye have heard the blasphemy. This is in the Jewish court now. Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now, that was no easy task on their part condemning Christ to death. The scribes and Pharisees were very much bent on it, but that didn't make it any easier for them. How could one be condemned who went about doing good? How could one be condemned who had demonstrated time and again through miracles that he performed that God was with him, indeed that he himself was God? How could he be condemned for his teaching? He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught as one who acknowledged the authority of the word of God and he never crossed God's word at any point. But in spite of his reputation, the Jews in their hatred would exert every effort to condemn one who was righteous. One false witness after another stood up to bring charges against him, but so ludicrous were their charges and their contradictions that Christ wouldn't even grace them with an answer. He ignored them and kept silent. But at the end of the day, they did condemn him. And for what? For the confession that came out of his mouth of his true identity. I adjure thee, the chief priest said to him, tell us whether thou art the Son of God. And he affirms that he is. And so it was his 
truthful identity that he had vindicated many times over by his works and his miracles. And that's what brought upon him their sentence of condemnation. So we've seen the strength of the sentence of guilt upon us. Such is the strength of Christ's accomplishment by the shedding of his blood that when he says no condemnation, we may well ask, as Paul asks in Romans 8, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? And you see now our question of condemnation in its context. When once the ruler of the universe has passed sentence of justification, there is no living being in heaven, earth, or hell that can change it. There is no higher court of appeal. The sentence of justification can never be nullified because it was accomplished by Christ shedding his blood and thus satisfying divine justice. So we have good cause to rejoice in the word of God that tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. To draw from the blessing of such a saying, remember the contrast between the holy, harmless Lamb of God and the poor, vile, guilty sinners that we are. Remember the strength of the sentence against you. You were not just a little bit guilty of sin. You were altogether lost and steeped in sin and guilty of countless crimes. And because of those crimes, Christ's blood must be shed. The penalty called for the shedding of his blood when we think of his blood, then, we must ever be mindful that our sins brought forth the shedding of his blood. But thank God for what was accomplished when he shed his blood. This was all according to plan. And God's justice was satisfied. Condemnation was wrought upon one in our place. And there is, therefore, now no condemnation because there's already been condemnation toward one who died in our place. The humility of knowing that our sins called for the shedding of his blood and the knowledge of what he accomplished by the shedding of his blood should certainly light a fire in our hearts that will make us desirous of hearing and heeding the word that he gave to that woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. you remember that? A woman was taken in adultery in the very act, brought before Christ. Not that they cared about her adultery, but they were looking for leverage against Jesus Christ to see if he would condemn her. And if he wouldn't, well... How can this be the Messiah? He doesn't even give heed to the law of Moses, which calls for her condemnation. And if he does call for her condemnation, then uh, he's violated the Roman law, for they uh, were not allowed to put adulteresses to death while they were occupied in the Roman Empire. So she was just a tool in their hands, caught in the very act of adultery, 
And you remember what happened. Christ said, let, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. One by one they all depart. And there she stands alone with Christ. And he asks her, where are those then accusers? Has any man condemned thee? Which she answers, no man, Lord. And Christ utters glorious words. Christ, the one who does that, have the authority and the moral fortitude to condemn her, says to her, neither do I condemn thee. Why would he say that? Did he have no respect for the Mosaic law? Oh no, he had great respect for the law. But you see, he himself would soon go and bear her condemnation for her. So he could say to her on that occasion, neither do I condemn thee. But then he also said something else to her, and we can take a good lesson from this. He said to her, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. As we partake of these elements today, and then leave this house later this day, may it be our desire from hearts filled with thanksgiving to go forth from this place determined that we will, by the grace of God and with his help, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's in Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. This is basically where the truth of no condemnation should lead us. Oh, I want to follow my Savior in obedience to Him because He has borne my condemnation for me. I won't be so naive as to think I'm going to be uh, completely successful, resolution notwithstanding, but I'm at least pointed in that direction. And by God's grace, I will strive from the power of thanksgiving to render to Him that obedience that is His due. May our resolution be strong this morning based on so great salvation accomplished at such a high price. Let's close then in prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, and begin to contemplate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. We do pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt help us to appreciate the sources from which our condemnation comes and the multitude of reasons for our condemnation. And then may we consider Christ who successfully bore that condemnation for us. And, O oh Lord, may our lives be transformed in the process. Draw near to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.